Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 10 again. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you be able to stand against the wiles or the tricks or the deceits of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you may be able to quench or put out all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all manner of prayer and supplication of the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Amen. What we've seen here is that the Apostle Paul having is writing at the end of this very important and powerful letter to the churches at Ephesus that they were entering into a spiritual battle. We've looked back in Acts chapter 20 and we've seen what some aspects of this battle are. Paul was telling them that when he left them, what was going to happen is that ravenous wolves were going to come in. Not the four-legged type, the two-legged type. We're going to come in and try to devour the church, the body of Christ in Ephesus from the outside. And not only that, he was warning them that some were going to rise up from within and try to draw many of them away. In other words, there's a spiritual warfare going on for the church. The Bible tells us, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 13 and there are other versions of the same story, he tells us a very important parable. He tells about the parable of the sower. And he talks about the seed that was sown, and there are very different results. One sown on, on stony ground, it never takes root, it never grows. Another sown in shallow ground, that never fully you know, takes root and grows. It grows a little bit, but when the sun comes up, it's scorched very easily. And down in Texas, we got a good example of that, because everything's scorched down there. They haven't had rain in months, and the temperatures have been over 100. You can just see everything. No wonder they have these wildfires down there. So, so that's what happens when you don't have deep roots. Now, the bushes and the trees still have green leaves on them, but that's because their roots go deep enough where there's still some moisture. But the grass is all burned out. And then he said, some of the seed is sown on, on uh, stony ground, excuse me, on ground where there's thistles and there's weeds and other things growing up. And what he says is what happens is, the message, part of the message is there, that the, the Word of God is the seed, and whenever it's sown, there will be opposition. In the first place, the birds of the air come just to take it before it ever takes root. And there's word, the word of God is being proclaimed tonight. And in every one of you that's sitting here, there's a battle that's going on right now for that word to take root in your soul, down in your spirit, and begin to grow. Because if it takes root in you and you continue to water that seed, it will begin to change you and change your life. Because it is purposeful. In Isaiah 55, it says the Word of God comes down from the Father of God and it is, comes down and just as the rain comes down from heaven and the snow, it does not re, and it does not return void, but it accomplished what it was sent to do. In the same way, the Word of God comes and it will not revert, return to Him without accomplishing what it was sent to do. If I have trouble with my words tonight, we got in after midnight last night, so, you know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm here in spirit. So the Word of God is designed to accomplish God's will in your life. But because of that, there's a battle that goes on for it. 
And Paul is talking to them about that battle. And every one of you tonight is in some kind of a spiritual battle, whether you realize it or not. And we've talked about that battle before. I don't want to go spend much time on that tonight. But Paul, it's so important to understand that the, the, these parts of this armor that he's talking about are to help us in the battle. So every one of these items that he's talking about We need to have an understanding of them and apply them in our lives because it's what's going to provide either the defense against the battle or it's going to be the weapon to win the battle, but they're essential. And the first thing we saw is that what we're we're fighting against is the tricks and deceits of the enemy. He doesn't have power over you, but he will deceive you to using the power God gave you against yourself. We've also seen who the enemy is. The enemy is not anyone in flesh and blood. I don't care if that you think that person at work hates you with all there is in you. It's not that person. The Bible... See, we've got to decide whether the Bible is the truth or not. We can't just come to church on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and say yes and amen and even read your Bible in the morning and get inspired and say yes and amen and then go out and not act as if this is true. This word will, works. It will change your life. It will do exactly what God says it will do because God stands behind His word. But the reason it's not working in many of our lives is we pay lip service to it. We come in and we listen to it and we get excited about it. We read it and get excited about it. But when we get out there into the fire of life and of the battle, we don't think to apply it and act on it and do what it says to do. And here's one of those examples, because the Word of God says we don't wrestle, we don't struggle in this spiritual warfare against flesh and blood. There is no flesh and blood who is your enemy. They may use people... But your enemy is no person, it's the spirits that are using them. Which is one of the reasons I believe Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, that I think, 5, I think it is, it says, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Think about that a second. That's not somebody who steps on your toe or cuts you off on, in, you know, on I-95. That's somebody who looks at you and says, you know what, I hate you. I'm going to hurt you and take advantage of you. And you know that they planned it and did it on purpose. That's what really gets under our skin. And Jesus says to pray for them. That's not easy to do. But he's given us some things to do that aren't easy to do. But one of the ways to do it is to recognize that that person is not your enemy. There's a spirit that's trying to use them to get at you. And what are they trying to get at you? They're trying to get the word to be unproductive in you. All right. So let's go down. We began to look last time in verse 15. It says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Some translations say that put on the belt of truth. And we talked about that last time. The belt is where they would hang their weapons from. It's what would... would, would take their robe and pull it together so that they, could, they wouldn't trip over it as they were running or fighting in battle. And, and, and the first piece of the armor, now remember this is God's armor. So we are in a spiritual war. You are in a spiritual war. If you don't realize it, then you're in danger. 
because you're being beaten and you don't know that's where it's coming from. You may be blaming people, you may be blaming circumstances, but there is a spiritual warfare going on. The Bible says so. There's not a little footnote in my Bible that says and has your name down there except for you. There's not one that says except for John here. We're all in some form of spiritual warfare, but God has given us the weapons to win it. But we've got to put them on. And that's what this is about. And that was his stake here. So we looked last time at the very first thing we're told to put on, which is the belt of truth. And we talked about the very first thing when it comes to having God as your defense, because that's what the armor of God is. God defends you. God defends you. You're either going to defend yourself or God's going to defend you, but not both. And we saw that the reason truth is so important, why it's the first thing, is because God is a God of truth. He is truth. So God cannot, not that He won't, will not, He cannot do anything apart from truth. So if God is going to be our armor and our defense, we have to be walking in truth. And we looked at what truth means. Truth means nothing hidden. I'm not trying to pretend something. And we looked at the fact that, first of all, we have to be truthful with ourselves, and then truthful with God. We saw a scripture last time that says, you can't hide anything from God anyway. Because He sees everything. So when we're hiding it from God, we're only hiding it from ourselves. And the reason we hide things and don't want to face things, it's called excuses, lying, Here's one you may not have thought of. Self-pity is a form of deception. Those are all self-deceptions, and there are others. When we do that, those are ways of trying to protect ourselves. And when you're trying to protect yourself, you've now excluded God from being able to protect you. So that's what we talked about last time. I'm not going to go back over it any more than that, because I want to go on to the next one tonight. And this is a very important one. Now, I know some of you needed your toes prayed for last week because we talked about, you know, walking in truth. And we got down to not just, you know, well, I don't lie. Yeah, but that's not the only way we don't walk in truth. All right, we won't go back there again. And having put on the breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what does a breastplate do? It's interesting, I was watching some news story a week or so ago when, I don't know, whether it was over in Libya or some one of the places in the Middle East where there's been tremendous turmoil, I think it was Libya, and there was a reporter, a woman reporter who was in the middle of all the, the firing that was going on, and she was wearing a vest, but it was a bulletproof vest. You got to know, you know, that's a high-risk job when the first thing they give you to wear is a bulletproof vest. So she's wearing this bulletproof vest, but I'm thinking about it while she's wearing this. It doesn't cover her legs and it doesn't cover her arms. She's got a helmet on. We'll talk about the helmet later on. But she's got this bulletproof vest. Why? What the purpose of that vest is to protect. So when they designed the vest, just as when they designed this breastplate, they pick out what it is they need to protect so they can design this vest or the breastplate to do the job of protecting. 
So what is it that that bulletproof vest is protecting against? Because that's what we'd use in today's. What, what, is, what was the breastplate protecting? The vital organs. And what is the most vital organ that's right in the center of your chest? It's your heart. And I was praying about this today. There's a verse that came to me, and it's Proverbs 4.23 that says, Guard, guard, that means protect your heart with all diligence. In other words, the ultimate priority of your defensive posture must be to protect your heart. Why? Because he says, out of it flow or come the issues of life. Now, think about that. Because Jesus talks about, in in Matthew 13, in the parable of the sower, he talks about the seed being sown. And in the parable, he talks about the seed being sown in the soil or the ground. And the different results, same seed, different results. In some cases, it produced nothing. In some cases, it produced some growth, but it didn't withstand the pressure of the heat. In some cases, it grew, but it produced some fruit, but nothing really valuable because it was choked off. And in other cases, it produced 30, 60. It produced wonderful fruit. The only variable, the only thing changed in each one of those examples was the condition of the soil. And if you go on to read, it becomes clear that the condition of the soil represents the condition of our heart. So Jesus is teaching that what God's method of growth and maturity in our lives is for us to take this word and to sow it into our heart. And then we are to guard our heart because the devil knows that the most vital part of you is your heart. And so he wants to sow things in your heart also, which is why Hebrews chapter 12 says to not allow bitterness to get into your heart because it will form a root of bitterness. And out of that root of bitterness, many will be defiled. So the battle that's going on is for the condition of your heart. I believe that's one of the reasons why Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. I believe that's one of the reasons Jesus says, if somebody has despitefully used you, pray for them. Because when you pray for them, you are changing your heart towards them. Because he goes on to say, because when you do that, you'll be acting like your Father who's in heaven. See, when somebody does something against God... He doesn't just get back at them. Otherwise, we'd all be puddles of fried fat. (laughs) When you pray for somebody that's your enemy, it opens your heart to God and then actually opens your heart to them. But the thing we don't like about it is we can get hurt. But when you open your heart, you make it vulnerable. When you make it vulnerable, you make it also vulnerable or open to the Spirit of God. So you can't have your heart open to God and closed to people. 
You can't do that. You can't choose to be open to God and close to people. Because the way you treat people is really your heart attitude towards God. And so Paul is teaching us here that the first thing that we need to be defending and protecting is our heart. And now what is it that is the, is the, the principle that he gives us that is designed to protect our heart from the weapons of the enemy, it is the breastplate of righteousness. So just as we are to walk in truth, and by walking in truth, we are putting on part of his armor, part of his defensiveness, defensive, in the same way, when we walk in righteousness, we are now also walking in who God is. Because the, oh, let's just secret. This is where we're headed. The armor of God is God Himself. It's His characteristics. See, we can't have God defending us and not be acting like Him. See, I've heard people teach, you know, and they'll act this out. They'll, they'll put on a belt and they'll talk, you know, put on the belt. And get up in the morning, put on your belt. Get up in the morning and put on your breast. That's a fine exercise to go through. But that's mentally picturing a piece of material over my chest. That's not what this is all about at all. It's the armor of God is literally God defending you. And He can do a great job. Just ask Moses. Moses had people come against him, even his own brother and sister, and Moses never defended himself. God defended Moses because Moses walked in these principles. So the armor of God is literally God defending you. But God can't defend you if you're not going to act like him. Not because of some, not because he said, look, you're acting nasty, so I'm going to hold back my protection. It's like, it's like we talked weeks ago on Sunday morning. It's like trying to get the wet without the water or the water without, without the wet. You can't get one without the other. You can't have God and not have truth. And you can't have God and not walk in righteousness. So let's talk about what righteousness is because it is what protects your heart. Well, there are two aspects of righteousness that we're going to look at. One of them we may only get through tonight, but that's okay. This is worth spending a little time on. Now, in the circles that we generally travel in, we think in terms of righteousness, in terms of what Paul's doctrine of righteousness, which is that when you come to Christ, when you put your faith in Christ, then he takes his righteousness and gives it to you. And that's exactly what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God that's in Christ Jesus. So when you came to Christ, you made an exchange. You took your unrighteousness and you gave it, you, when you gave yourself to him, you gave him all the nastiness. <laughs> I know you weren't nasty. I know you're just sitting there tonight, you know, you're so sweet. Then he didn't need to die for you, did he? We've all had nasty attitudes. 
we've all lied. We've all offended him at times. We've said things we shouldn't have said. You know, there's some scriptures that make me uncomfortable. One of them is, we're going to stand judgment for the idle words. How many of that one in your refrigerator? <laughs> so just, just if you happen to think you were pretty good, it's all your idle words enough. <laughs> and he took all that unrighteousness on himself and then gave you God's righteousness that was in him. So the righteousness you've been given is God's own righteousness. That's pretty good righteousness. That's how you can get into heaven. Because you come in wearing His righteousness. And we'll talk about that. But I believe that what He's talking about here is something beyond that. I did some study on the word righteousness in the Old Testament and New Testament. And the word righteousness has really two aspects to it. The first is really simple. (laughs) It's being right with God. Now, you know, by and large, in, in the body of Christ, we fall into two errors. Brother Hagen used to talk about each road has a ditch on either side. And we got people on the left-hand ditch, and we got people on the right-hand ditch. And it doesn't matter which ditch you're in, because when you're in the ditch, you're not in the middle of the road. And you can't go far. And there's some people out there just teaching, you know, we're just nothing but, you know, ugly, lowly worms. And we're, you know, just horrible sinners that have been saved by grace. And, and that's true. And they just wallow in and dwell on our sin, the sin nature. That, oh, and, and, and the result is it takes all of our confidence away before God. And we're going to talk about that. But then the ditch on the other side says, well, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I've got His righteousness. Hey, I can do what I want to do. Because I'm the righteousness of God. I'm full of boldness. <laughs> but I got word, news for you. The word righteousness means living right before God. So we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. Whether it's okay with you or not, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. <laughs> it's interesting because the word righteousness in the Old Testament implies a relationship with somebody. The word righteousness implies a relationship with somebody and the person that you're in relationship with expects a certain standard of behavior. Now, my wife and I have been married for over 44 years, so we have a relationship with each other. And out of that relationship, we expect certain things of each other. And we have a right to do, we have a right to do that. We have a right to do that. One of the things she expects of me is that I'm going to come home at night. Hey, you know, I've been, you know, we love each other because we love each other. We're free. 
so I can do what I want to do. Go out with the boys, I'll come home at three in the morning if I want to. She expects that I'm going to be in our bed at night with her. And that's not an unreasonable thing to expect because by being in this relationship, she has certain rights that she has a right to expect. So if I do what I want to do outside of what she has a right to expect, I'm acting unrightly towards her out of a relationship. It's not that we ever sat down. I'm sure some of this she may not have ever thought of. I'm not sure. You know, it's not like we sat down and drew up rules when we got married and negotiated those rules so that before we actually, you know, during the engagement period, I said, all right, we need to reach an, reach an understanding. How late can I stay out? When I'm out with the guys, let's throw a rule. What is this okay for me to do? And what is it not okay for me? This is good. Not okay for me to do. We didn't do that. Because we didn't come into, oh, this is good. We didn't come into this relationship to determine what we could get away with. In other words, how little do I have to put into this and still be married to you? What can I get away with and not get in trouble? See, if a husband sits down with me and I find out that's the issue, I look at him and I say, well, you know, you got no problem. You're not really married anyway. I mean, you're acting like a single person who's chained to her. And you're stretching the chain as far as you can because it's chafing at you to keep you from doing what you want to do. Why'd you get married? So marriage is a covenant relationship, which means a commitment of all of yourself. So when we were getting, we didn't try to figure out what is it I have to do? When do we have to be together? When can I get to be on my own? Now listen carefully. But isn't that what we do with God? Aren't we listening to sermons and reading our Bibles? Oh, do I have to do that? You're asking, God asks a whole lot of me. I mean, if you look at it in those terms, she asked a whole lot of me. I mean, we've got to live with each other the rest of our lives. What if we got bored? I mean, this is the kind of questions that run through a young person's mind. But see, we made a commitment. And when you make that covenant commitment, you've already pre-made certain choices. I've chosen I want her, and I want a relationship with her. Her, and by virtue of wanting that relationship with her, that automatically means certain things aren't right. Not because she says so, because I don't want to hurt her. 
I don't want to violate this commitment and this relationship. If you read through the, 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 the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, and you read how Jesus talks about his Father, and you read his conversations with his Father, and then even over in Hebrews when it talks about, I came not to do my will, but to do your will. You don't find Jesus saying, I've got to say only what he says to say. I've got to, I can only do what he tells me to do. Oh, this is so hard. You don't hear that from him at all. You hear joy. Why? Because Jesus did those things out of love for his father. So if you're being obedient out of fear and you're being obedient because you have to, then you don't understand your relationship with him. Righteousness means living in right relationship with someone that loves you beyond anything you'll begin to imagine. And when you begin to love him back, you will want to live in a way that's pleasing to him and not pleasing to yourself. And that's the only thing that really satisfies. When you're living your life to please you, let me let you in on a secret because I've tried it. It doesn't satisfy. It frustrates. It's empty. It's lonely. It's miserable. And that's why many Christians struggle because they're still living themselves single married to God. Righteousness just means living right in His eyes because of the relationship that you had with Him. But it means living right. Living according to His standards and by, in a way that would please Him. And we're talking about this in the context of the armor of God as a protection. I want to give you some examples in the Bible of, of where God, in order to protect people or do, people, do, do something for somebody, required that they make certain things right with Him. One of the examples that we're going to talk about is in Exodus chapter 4. Let's turn there. It's interesting because the note in my Bible says this one's difficult to understand. I don't think it's so difficult. Exodus chapter 4. The story here, of course, is God's preparing to deliver His people. He's chosen Moses. Chapter 3 is when God reveals Himself to Moses. This is the Moses' destiny, the purpose for his life. And in chapter 3, God appears to Moses in the burning bush and talks to him and tells him that he's chosen Moses to go back and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. Moses now goes home, gets his wife and his kids, and he's on the way to Egypt to obey God. And we're going to start in verse 19. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go and return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. 
Then Moses took his wife and his sons and sent them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hands. He's all ready to fulfill. He's got God's call on his life. God's appeared to him and commissioned him and he's on his way to obey God. Verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh which I put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord. So he's going to speak for God. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, then indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. I mean, Moses is full. God spoken to him, commissioned him. He says, look, whatever you say, I'm going to do. Woo! Yeah! Bring on the power! He's going to be in a battle with evil. Verse 24 came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait, wait. Is God just having a bad day here? <laughs> I mean, God's called this man. Told him what he's called to do. He's equipped him. He's commissioned him and released him and set him. And he's on his way to obey God and do what he's supposed to do. And God stops him, stands in his way, and confronts him as if he's going to kill him. What is this about? Well, you'll see in a minute. See, they had some understanding of what was going on. See, they, <laughs> this is good. Verse 25, Zipporah, his, that's his wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and threw it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. What had happened is, while he was living in Midian, he married Zipporah, they had a son, and he did not circumcise this son as was required under the, Mos- under the covenant that God made with Abraham, which is an eternal covenant. He knew it, she knew it, because the moment she saw God's anger, she knew what to do. That tells me that they already knew in their heart they weren't right. Say, when God's correcting you about things, and we'll talk more about that next week, when God's correcting you about, you don't have to go on some long hunt. You don't have to go on a 60-day fast and search your soul. You know. You know. You know. It's not some subtle thing. She knew right away they got caught. And the moment she realized the seriousness of of being right in God's eyes under the terms of that covenant... She went ahead and did, and, and did what God... And she wasn't, didn't like it. And she called him a son of blood, which is the, bloody, the blood of the covenant. And then verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go, meet, go to wilderness and meet Moses. So now everything's cool. So here it is. God's requiring that before he's going to stand and represent God and go into a spiritual battle, he has to get things right according to what God required. And what God required under the terms of that covenant with Abraham is that every male son be circumcised 
in the flesh of his foreskin. Why? Because that was a mark of that covenant. And God is saying you cannot go into spiritual warfare unless you're within the terms of that covenant. Unless you have that mark of that covenant. We don't have time tonight to go into a teaching on, on blood covenant. I do that in the school of ministry, and I, I've done it here. I may do it again on a, on a Wednesday night in the future. But basically what a blood covenant was, was when two people, maybe it was two tribes, two families, two nations come together for some mutual benefit, and sometimes it was protection. And one of the steps of entering into a covenant is there would be some kind of a cut in the body by which blood was shed, and that blood would be intermingled somehow, whether it was by putting hands together, and often the cut was on the hand, or on the, fore, on the forehead, or on the chest. And what that meant is when you faced somebody else and you saw that mark on their forehead or on their chest or on their hand, that was a warning to you that that person that you were now in battle with was in blood covenant with somebody else. And under the terms of a blood covenant, you two nations, two tribes, two families, two groups now became one. So whatever you did to one, you did to the other. So if you attacked one of those families, and they were in blood covenant. And the example I would use, it's, I don't know if it ever was true, but the example I would use in, in teaching this kind of an extreme, suppose you had the, you know, a, a tribe of pygmies, the little short people, and they entered into a, into, a, into a blood covenant with the Watusis who were all seven-foot warriors, Maasai warriors, and bigger. And that, that Maasai covenant had a certain mark on their forehead or on their hand, and you saw that on the hand of these little, you know, you're lining up these little tribe of people. Hey, these are easy for us. And the minute they come closer to you, you begin to notice there's a mark on their forehead. And you're like, oh, that's a blood covenant sign of the Maasai warrior. That means if I attack this little people. See, that's what David was saying when he faced Goliath. And he said to him, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He was saying to the armies of Israel and to Saul, the king of Israel, Who is this guy you're afraid of? He has no covenant with God. And so God is saying here to Moses, you're going not into battle with Goliath, you're going into a spiritual warfare, but you've not come under the mark of the covenant. Therefore, you're going to go into warfare on your own without me, your covenant partner, because you're not walking in the terms of the covenant because you wouldn't obey it and mark your sons as the sign of that covenant. So God wasn't trying to kill him because he was angry. God was trying to protect him. So that he would get this right before God. So that God could protect him. Fast forward the story. We get over into, we don't have time to turn there, but over into Joshua chapter 5. And the nation of Israel, the next generation, because the first generation died out because they wouldn't believe God and enter in to the promised land. So God had to let that whole generation die in the wilderness and wait until everybody 
that was born in Egypt other than two men, the two men who were in faith, Joshua and Caleb. And he said to them, the rest of them, once the next generation grew up, he brought them around and they're right at the edge of Jericho. They're right ready to enter into the land and they're going to have to do battle in Jericho and Ai and, and about 30, 29 other cities. They're going to have to do battle to take the land that they've been called to take. And God pulls Joshua aside and says, before you do that, you've got to circumcise all the males because they had not circumcised the males since they were the ones that had been born since they came out of Egypt. In other words, you've got to get things right before me under the terms of this covenant so that when you go into battle, I will be your defense because that's the terms of the covenant that I've made with you. It's interesting, but over in Matthew 3, verses 1 through 3, you see the story of John the Baptist, a little different version here, but you see that he was called as a forerunner. He was called to go before and make the way for the coming of the Lord. And what was his message? He had a one-word message, repent. In other words, get things right before God. So although we live in a generation where we walk in the righteousness of God by faith, and we do, we'll talk more about that, that's the other aspect of this. We can't ignore what this word means. It means you cannot just live your life and do what you want to do and then expect that God's armor is going to be there protecting you when you don't act like Him. If you're living in sin, I'm not thinking of anybody, I'm not looking at anybody. I'll close my eyes. (laughs) If you're living in adultery, if you're living in fornication, and you're you're in a spiritual warfare, your armor's down. doesn't mean God doesn't love you. He wants to protect you. But it's kind of like going out into a pouring rain and we have umbrellas to hand you as you leave, but you walk outside the umbrella. Don't be shocked if you get wet. There's an old expression that says, if you play in the devil's backyard, don't be surprised if you get bitten. We don't talk much about this. It's called sin. But I do not see the word in the Bible. It is in here. I know I've seen it someplace. It just means not living right before God. And the fact that we belong to Him, we're His children, the fact that He's given us His righteousness doesn't mean we, cannot, we can live in ways that are not pleasing to Him and not have consequences in our life. I mean, we've just come through a hurricane. If you leave your front door open and your windows open and your carpet gets wet, it's not shocking. Why? Pastor, I don't understand. I believe God. I trusted God. But my carpet got wet. 
Did you close your doors? No. Then quiet. I believe, I really sense God working in me that we are called as a church for specific spiritual warfare. I don't know what it is. It's not just what the enemy is trying to do to you now. I mean on the offensive. The church has not called, been called to be defensive. We've called to be on the offense. But if the devil can keep us back on our heels, being defensive, trying to survive, hoping we're going to make it, then he's never going to be attacked. And we've come, we're called to take back spiritual territory for God. We're called to do that. And God is preparing us by teaching us that we have to be properly armed to do that. And that armor is to be like Him, think like Him. We're going to talk about that down the road. Act like Him. Live like He does. Does that mean you're perfect? No. But see, when we say, well, I can't be perfect, that's an excuse for doing what you are doing. Well, I can't be perfect. That's like people say, well, I don't want to go to church because the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, and the biggest one's you. <laughs> That's like saying, well, you know, I don't want to really, I, do, I don't want to accept Jesus because what, what about all the, what about people that have never heard of him? Is God going to send them to hell? Said, so, I don't know about them, but I know about you because you have heard. <laughs> See, we want to we deflect the attention from ourselves. And when it comes to living right before God, we've got all kinds. See, these, these, these pieces of armor fit together. So walking in truth. Remember I said the most important truth to walk in is being honest with yourself. So if you're living in some kind of sin right now, the beginning is to get honest with yourself. Acknowledge I'm wrong. Call it what it is. It's sin. It's not a weakness it's not a problem you have. It's not a tendency I have. This, we're, I'm so fed up to hear, well, I've got this tendency. Of course we do. It's called sin in our flesh. <laughs> our flesh has a tendency to do wrong. And so does yours. But when you come to Christ, he, you're born again. That old nature dies. You've been given His nature. So now, according to Romans 6, sin no longer has dominion over us. But we have dominion over our flesh and over the sin that our flesh wants to commit. But guess what? You have to exercise that dominion. And it starts by walking in truth. Lord, it's sin. I'm wrong. Then here's what you do. The cross is the answer to it. You take it to the cross. 1 John 1, nine. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all, and to cleanse you from all. He is faithful and just. He is faithful and just. He is faithful. And you do one part, and He does two. You confess, and He 
He forgives you and he cleanses you from all unrighteousness and it's gone. That's the cure for sin. As you confess it, you repent of it, and you walk away from it. What I'm telling you today, by the Spirit of God today, is that because of the battle, the spiritual battle that you're in right now, and the warfare that's going to increase, I'm not talking about natural things, I'm talking about spiritual warfare that's going to increase, it is critical. I haven't taught on the armor of God in years. I really felt impressed to go to it. It is critical that we learn to wear the armor of God, that we walk in truth, and that we, walk, we live right in God's eyes. How, what does that mean? Living in a way that pleases Him because you love Him and He loves you. Not obeying a bunch of rules because you have to, but being right in His eyes because it pleases Him. Doing what you want to do pleases you. Doing what's right in his eyes pleases 